everyone, this is just a quick note to say that this episode of Murray Musings does contain some discussion on the topic of domestic violence. If this is something that you would rather avoid listening to, that's absolutely fine. And We have included the timestamps of the beginning and end of this discussion in the description just down below. Thank you very much. Welcome to another episode of Murray Musings. Today we have a great guest for you today, Ben Rothenberg. He is the New York Times columnist and host of the podcast No Challenges Remaining. That's almost up to 300 episodes. He is one of the most widely talked about and cited tennis journalists in the world. A man who can do a crossword puzzle in 12 minutes. We have on the infamous Ben, uh, not to be confused with that Steelers quarterback. Right. Ben, how are you doing today? Well, 12 is like a Sunday time for me these days. I'm, I'm really picking oh. up my time. So, you know, I'm doing well. Thank you. How are you, Pete? Good to see you. I haven't, I haven't seen you in a while. You're my usual Cincinnati buddy. Yeah. So this is, it's lovely it's... to, lovely to see you again. Great to see you, even if it's on Zoom. Yes. Um, so we want to, of course, say hey to our uh, co-host, Scott and Rashmi. How are y'all doing today? Really yeah. good. Yeah, really good. A little bit nervous. A little bit scared. <laughs> Let's talk through this but, right away. Uh... Get to Scott, why are you, why are you afraid of me? <laughs> I didn't realize that we were going to be getting into it so soon in the episode. Um, Let's just confront but... our fears at the beginning. I... Let's, let's, let's get it over oh, with. Relax. Basically, uh, at some moments in the past, uh, on Twitter, Tennis Twitter, uh-huh. where it all goes down, I've given you some fairly uh, public criticism, uh, public uh, you know, scrutiny in regards to some of the things that you said. I've never been blocked by you. Very possible. I might have been muted. <laughs> I don't know. I may have been muted by you, but I've never actually been blocked as of right now. Um, so, do, you, yeah, do you feel I like you deserve to be blocked? Where you, you seem like you're like coming in, like <laughs> you're turning yourself in or something I, here. What what is this? I don't. You know what? I don't know. Like I'm not sure. You've been trying I, I to get blocked. Some people try to get blocked. Oh my gosh! I don't think I've ever tried to get blocked. You know what? Like over time in the last like ten years or so, I've definitely kind of like mellowed out uh, a, a little bit. Mm-hmm. But you know, a couple of years back, I definitely was in your replies yeah. a lot more than I was. Uh, but yeah, I I I think that you're you come across as someone who kind of likes the drama and likes to kind of <laughs> stir up drama between tennis fans. Um, and I, I kind of fed into that a little bit and kind of, yeah, bought, bought right into that at, at some point. So what you're saying is all the things I said about you were really more about me is what you're saying. Um, I don't know. Um, I don't know if I would go as far as to say okay. that, but yeah, okay. I, okay. I, I've definitely kind of, uh, you know, I, 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 I've just seen you as a little bit of a controversial figure in the tennis world. Um, okay. and yeah, had some things to say, but that's probably why I feel a bit nervous. Rash me. I don't know no. if you feel a little bit. Uh, I think I may have said something about, uh, I remember commenting, like replying to one of Ben's tweets talking about what Andy thought about best of three, but other than that, like, other than that, it's been smooth sailing, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Andy Murray noted best of three advocate diehard lately. So that's, that's wonderful. Um, okay. Well, I'll, 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 I'll get back to you then, Scott. Like, why do you think, cause you're sort of referring to me in these ways. Why do you think people have such strong opinions about me then? Let's set the um, stable for this, for what we're doing here. Good question. I guess, so I basically refer to you as a bit of a, um, like a perennial potster, someone who kind of really buys into the controversy, 
um, repeatedly mm-hmm. uh, just to see people kind of get annoyed. And you, you, you'll take like a, a debate that's relatively like kind of minor in the grand scheme of things, like the best of a three, five set debate, whatever it is, um, or um, and like mm-hmm. really kind of like push your thoughts on that a little bit. Um, <laughs> But uh, and then another one would be like uh, I don't know John Isner at the John Isner beating Nadal <laughs> uh, or you know being the biggest challenger yeah. to Nadal at the French <laughs> Open um, and it, it comes across I don't know like you, you, you'll be able to tell it's like whether or not you really believe these things or if you uh, you know are just saying them to get, get a reaction out of people that you know that you're going to get with opinions like that are as divisive as that um so yeah i, mean, I don't know i don't, can... I, don't I, know, I i think it's less honestly about getting a reaction from me and more about just really sociopathically or not not caring about the reaction like i know mm. like if if and like if i put up a poll let's say of my of, of my Twitter followers, like how many of you think that you know men should switch to best of three at Grand Slams? It would be like eighty five percent no, roughly. I know mm-hmm. that I know people don't agree with me, but that doesn't stop me from saying mm. it in a way that maybe other people would be more daunted by that. Mm. I just don't care, really. Like if I feel a certain way about something, I'm happy to say it. Same thing with Isner. I mean, Isner, okay. yeah, I said Isner would probably be like the biggest threat to Nadal at the French Open for the last, I don't know, like four years. And Isner has not actually played Nadal at the French Open in, yeah, in that stretch. So, and Nadal's yeah. won all those French Opens. So, <laughs> case proven. Yeah, that proves your point, I guess, yeah. yeah. And I've even texted you, Ben, and asked you, you, you know you stir the shit, right? <laughs> but I, 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 to, to, and you were like, yes, I it, do. Well, if, if pot, like, I just, do people want unstirred pots? Is that fun? No. It just seems like congealing I mean... and growing a... It just seems gross. <laughs> yeah. I mean, honestly, I, like, I think fair. that, like, I, I don't think I do too many things to, like, usually... I'm sure I've had exceptions to this, but, like, just for the sake of pot stirring. But um, I also do think that, like, I'm trying to get people to care about the sport on some level. Oh, right? yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah. I think that yeah. it doesn't... I, I think that some sort of conversation or disagreement or debate... Or, or drama to use a more loaded word yeah. about that is all like is all sort of positive for a sport that is a lot of times very dry and a lot of times yeah. uh, very especially in the U.S. like very sort of niche and it is those um, moments that that you know those sort of flashpoints get people to care like that's the sort of, that's a big like sort of curious conversation right like curious has never been top ten <laughs> has never won like a big title. But he's still, like, Tennis TV, for example, is constantly, like, on their social media putting up, like, especially on Instagram, like, at least once a week, like, all the best Nick Kyrgios shots yeah. and all this stuff. Because they know that he drives numbers and he drives interest and excitement and clicks and all these things. And mm-hmm. even if that's, even if he doesn't have, you know, anywhere near, like, the resume of, like, I don't know, like, a Dominic team, I think Kyrgios on that level is probably a much more sort of valuable asset for the sport than just some guy who wins more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, I guess on that subject of like Kyrgios on Instagram, um, he, you know, he, uh, if, if you're looking at it from a purely objective standpoint of results, um, he has much more of a, like a much bigger following than someone that you might expect of the ranking that he has. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, like if you, you know, like he's got, I checked the other day, he has like 1.6 million followers on Instagram, um, which is very impressive for somebody who's like never been ranked inside the top. 10? Yeah, I think, I think Ben yeah, just no, said that. I think he's yeah. like 13 or something like that. But he's, yeah, that's what yeah. I was saying. I mean, like, curious, but also, 
And, he, and, he, and he's different than, like, a Benoit Pair, who I think is sort of, like, all nonsense and not really much import value. <laughs> but um, in terms of yeah, in terms yeah. of its current offerings. <laughs> but, like, Kyrgios has big wins yeah. over big players. He's beaten all the big guys at, at pretty sizable tournaments, whether it's Masters or, or Slams. Um, I think mm-hmm. he's beaten all the big three at, at a yeah. Masters somewhere, and then Nadal at, at Wimbledon back in his breakout event. Um, uh-huh. But, yeah, it, it, but his value to the sport is not because he's winning trophies right his value yeah. sport is sort of being a little bit of yeah. a sideshow but also still in that in that way of i think still being a relevant player in draws like he's somebody if you see him if he when he drew like nadal second round of wimbledon a couple yeah. of years ago uh that was like a scary match for nadal yeah. in the second round and he yeah. did take a, a one set off him and close maybe some more yeah. two tie breaks i think in the third and fourth i remember mm-hmm. so like that is like he's competitively yeah. relevant again like unlike a a pair who's like just who's not a threat in really any draw. It's not someone to circle in a draw, but Kyrgios didn't is that he, way. So I think he's have, a big, big value. Sorry, didn't he have like a really big week in Acapulco? He beat Nadal as, as well as like other Yeah, he beat Nadal, he beat Favrenka, he beat Isner, yeah. and I think he beat Zverev maybe in that Yeah, week, yeah, it was Zverev in the final. Zverev or, in the yeah. final, yeah. Yeah, Zverev in the final, yeah. So yeah. that was like a ton of top wins. And, he's, yeah. and he won Washington, yeah. which is another 500 later that summer, mm-hmm. beating yep. Medvedev and Tsitsipas in the last two rounds. So like he can turn it on like so that's what keeps him and he's made a cincinnati final beat yeah. uh nadal on, on route to that cincinnati final and some other i mean he's other other runs and a couple quarters here and there so like he's i don't know why exactly i'm talking about curious but like he's i use him as an example <laughs> of just someone who like it's this i think he's a i think he's a super relevant person in the sport and how it's talked about and how it's understood mm-hmm. and how how it makes people feel he's very polarizing mm-hmm. but in this way that i think overall is, is a net positive than just somebody who's you know, a more successful player, like, you know, your teams, your Batista, Goots, whoever you want to name here, but who don't necessarily make people, don't animate people as much. And I think that sport is about making people care about stuff within reason. Mm-hmm. Like, you, don't, you know, he's not out there, you know, um, he has crossed the line for sure. Um, yeah. And it's not just about being, you know, being, an, being, an, being, a, I don't know how much swearing is out on this podcast, but being a not nice guy, let's say, <laughs> um, and being rude and being distasteful and all that stuff like that can't go too far for sure. But just being sort of a, yeah. sort of a classic sort of heel or villain or something, I think has a, has a lot of value to the, to the sport. How do you see that? Like going forward with the, I, I was curious isn't old, but like the next gen's coming up, Bublik, people like center coming up like what do you see mm-hmm. how do you see that going uh well i think the two people you named are in very different categories like public is yeah. definitely like in the in the <laughs> curious category for sure yeah. of like i think he really emulates nick a lot he does the under underarm serving a lot he's you know yeah. very similar because actually they played each other in miami in 2019 and Kyrgios was saying he reminded him of himself, but just needs to oh, like really? focus more. And Kyrgios like it's not, it's it's like really weird for me to be telling someone to focus more. Like Kyrgios, <laughs> like, that's not that's not usually my 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 line in these scripts. But um, but yeah, so so Bublik is definitely on that side of things, and I think he has provided a lot of entertainment. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if P. gets you're the only one in the U.S. who if you saw him like on the Tennis Channel desk interviews, but he was like they loved him. He was like making lots of jokes and yeah. being very yeah. entertaining and stuff. And so he's providing that category of stuff for sure that will appeal to a lot of people. And I think that attracts young people, especially. Yeah. That's one thing that I've seen from being on site at tournaments back when that used to be a thing that I did <laughs> um, is that kids love Curios. Like the kids mm. like all flock to Curios. And that's super important to have yeah, people for sure. to, mm-hmm. keep, to keep younger mm-hmm. generations involved and kids really respond to, uh, to Curios. It, back when he first was coming up, kids really responded to, uh, Nadal too. Nadal, there was something about him that I think sort of read as childlike for whatever reasons, mm-hmm. and 
and kids really related to uh to Nadal also in his early I'm not sure that's still the case, but in his early career for sure Nadal got a lot of like yeah. kid early kid on. attention. Yeah. And Kyrgios is great in practices with kids. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, he was yeah. he, he was in Washington from he won in twenty nineteen. He was like playing at, at a ping pong table playing against like lines of kids like an hour before the final. He was playing ping pong with kids. And then he went out and won the Amazing. final against Medvedev. Like his like it was just unreal that like almost no one can have that sort of level of divided focus and stuff. And you mm. see him do that, and you realize like he's he's pretty special as a as a as a as a talent. Yeah. You know, if mm. if still definitely an underachiever and all these other things people want to slide him with people who want to denigrate what he's done. Like sure, but like he's still like a pretty remarkable to to have that level of that often lack of of work ethic and focus and professionalism, people who call it at yeah. times, relative to the rest of his peers, um, and to still do the results he does, it just shows, like, what he is. And, yeah, I don't, I don't, I try not to focus too much. I'm not one of the people who focuses too much on, like, oh, well, but he's never made a, a semi. He always loses, you know, in his quarterfinals mm-hmm. or loses some big matches to big guys sometimes. Like, I, I think that the value he provides overall is still, is his value and focus yeah. on that part and i think he can get there i guess but i also don't think that's really the point like i just i just think even if he doesn't like i still think he's been a, a, a great presence yeah a valuable yeah presence for sure i want to talk about your evolution of your friendship with nick okay and you having him on uh your podcast okay how has that come along yeah nick and i um because <laughs> he played a fairly light schedule early on in his career and still kind of does so i didn't know him super well um, but we were like kind of friendly at tournaments a little bit. And he, I know he really appreciated that I was, <laughs> I sort of rolled my eyes online or whatever it was when he was getting a lot of heat, I guess in 2016 for, from the, uh, Australian Olympic committee and their yeah. head of his name was Kitty yeah. Chiller, memorably this woman, Awful. um, who was saying like, oh, him and Tomic are like bad examples and they shouldn't be part of the team, da 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 And I was like, this is dumb because like he's one of your best athletes. So like not sending him for whatever these like style reasons are just seems like pointless. And so and I think and I think that Nick and I see the sport in in a, in sometimes in ways that are fairly uh congruent to each other or like similar. Like we, you know, are both pretty irreverent. We're both like not people who are uh, afraid of challenging the sort of norms or the sort of, you know, sacred cows of the sport um, in terms of, like, you know, being all, I don't know, oh, everything must be prim and proper and, and lovely and I think I think we're both sort of willing to challenge that in different ways. And so I think that we can be have some similarities in terms of our, that, that sort of attitude. Um, but also, and also we're both, like, not afraid of you know disagree being disagreeable and uh things like that so I th- i'm sure that did make us you know uh forget what even it was oh it, like it was initially initially when it was like i think when we had our sort of like twitter back and forth that got attention really was at well there's a couple but not to go through all of them but like one was when uh-huh. he was making fun of Sitsipas on Twitter during the U.S. Open, before the U.S. Open, went to the, and just like constantly mocking him, and then and then deleting the tweets afterwards, and he and I wrote an article about Sitsipas or something, or did something that was under, was under my tweet that he responded to because he's avid follower. Yes, yeah, yeah. And he um, he he responded to something, and I was like, "Are you gonna like stand by this one or, or delete it again too?" And that sort of like set off like a sort of little back and forth. Um, <laughs> anyway. Um, which I was not, I'm sure it was not one of my finer moments on Twitter, probably. I don't need to be going, you know, back and forth with, with him. But he did sort of, he's always coming into my, like, if you, people are like, oh, 
people lump us into Twitter together, but if you look at like the history of it, it's all pretty much always him like responding to me like unsolicited. <laughs> Your exchanges are fun. Yeah, if, you know, and 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 I, I have no problem with that. But anyway, um, so but but we'd always you know sort of chatted in hallways occasionally. I think he re- he recognizes me as somebody who's like again like willing to call out bad behavior and hypocrisy mm-hmm. and stuff. And I think that means mm-hmm. that that's very important to him. I think he's someone who really sees a lot of hypocrisy in a lot of tennis things. Um, especially like that's cer- certainly shown up in like the last year where he's been yeah. like ripping the people who have been like bad COVID citizens, I think, and like seeing how he's talking mm-hmm. about Adria Tor and how he's talking about Zverev afterwards and then team or whoever else has been, uh, mm-hmm. in his opinion, not in probably most, a lot of people's opinions, not doing a great job of, of COVID citizenship, um, COVID era citizenship, uh, yeah, I think that we're sort of on the same page. So, yeah, so we did, we eventually did the podcast together, which I think because <laughs> people don't appreciate. People also like some people take the Twitter exchange just like really seriously and will like really like resent you forever if you have if you say something you know back and forth on Twitter. And I have had that with players, but um, but Nick is definitely not one of those people, and he's like it him. It's all kind of a performance in a game, and and he so we set up the interview yeah in Rome twenty nineteen. And yeah, and he was he was great. He was in a very chatty mood, and he was a fort, and it was it was yeah, it was uh, memorably fun. And right away, I could tell like he was just sort of being very unfiltered in a way that made me really appreciate just how filtered everyone else is all the time. <laughs> when you see what unfiltered sounds like, because he really wasn't saying anything in most of his answers that were like especially unpopular opinions, honestly. Oh, like oh, Djokovic tries too hard to be liked. Like that's he's not that's not an original thought from from curious like other people have said that all the time but for another top relevant player to be calling out those things about you know players in his rank and above his rank was super was was upsetting the apple cart and stirring the pot to use your phrase for sure in a way that tennis doesn't see a lot of so Uh yeah that's fair yeah uh talking about uh tennis players uh having situations with you how does the scrutiny that um you have with your audience like how does that affect your work um and do you want to talk about any tennis players that um have had problems with you on tennis <laughs> twitter i mean if there's specific examples i'm happy to address them i don't can't think of anything that comes to mind i mean i know like i'm cognizant of the fact that like i have people who are are, are pretty supposed to be against me on twitter and like mm-hmm. if you know like a tennis player like makes a face or something when I'm asking a question or, like, gives some answer that's, like, not pleasant. People will be like, oh, snap, Ben Rothenberg got owned by insert player name. <laughs> and, like, especially on the Zooms, like, it's just, like, it's not that serious and it's just not that that way. Um, certainly I have had players very occasionally who are, um, who, you know, sort of snap at me or, 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 or you know, are trying in some way to show disdain in, in their press conference answers, but it's, it's really not the uh-huh. case. And o- almost all the time it's, like, it comes in a history of like, you know, years of unremarkable interactions with them also. And so it, it doesn't mm-hmm. really reflect the larger whatever. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think, I think for the most part, like, um, yeah, for the most part, it, it's, it's nothing. There have been certainly like, obviously like Zverev at the French Open last year, like very much made a point of being like, I don't like you, like yeah. sort of mm-hmm. tone in his tone and people saw that. And I don't think that really reflected, especially, well on him yeah. really because i think the question i think was asking was about him playing through possible covid symptoms that day when he was talking about how mm. sick he was after he lost the center yeah um and yeah. people other people were like well okay 
I, I would wish that one of the other people in the press conference had repeated the question so you would answer it, but I don't think dodging that particular question, I just don't think that was a smart uh, mm. or savvy sort of PR strategy. Yeah. So I think I think it generally makes the players – I think well, two things. I think it generally makes the players look bad when they do things like that for the most part, but I also am cognizant that like, fans will almost always take the player side of any possible mm-hmm. player mm-hmm. versus media uh, you know, moment – Mm-hmm. always mm-hmm. And, and that's that is what it is I, I've, I've learned that and that's in all sports um that's yeah, fair. Yeah, um, fair so ben basically the three of us we were discussing before we recorded today um laying out exactly what to say to you and when to say it and then we basically uh-huh. went way off topic and <laughs> we just went way forward curious and stuff like that we're looking okay. for your origin story as a journalist and as a reporter from, you know, you've written for the New York Times and the Racket, and we want to know how you got your start. Yeah, I um, I was a tennis fan, you know, when I was in, I guess, became much bigger fan, like, late in, well, at the beginning, like, when I was college age, like, around, like, 2006, and it was on, like, a few, like, tennis message boards, which were sort of the big places back in the day sort of pre-social media as we know it now um and started a blog eventually which is called the daily forehand which is part of um sb nation network of of sites and then that and then through that i started getting this is abbreviated version but basically i started getting credentials to a few tournaments especially smaller tournaments were pretty willing to give credentials to a lot of people at that point um and eventually i got went to Cincinnati a couple times with that, which is a pretty sizable tournament, a Masters event. Um, that's back before it was, men and women played in back-to-back weeks, not um, simultaneously then, I think. I forget exactly when they merged, but I think it was, at least when I first went, it was back-to-back weeks. And um, yeah, I met someone there for the New York Times in 2011 who liked me, or saw that I was, you know, liked what I was doing there and saw that I was, I guess, getting interesting interactions with players and, um she basically put me in touch with the editor, one of the editors at the Times at that point for like upcoming U.S. Open stuff. And that's how I started working with the Times for the U.S. Open 2011. They used to have blogs like in there as part of their sports page setup. And so I was doing sort of like live blogging type stuff during the 2011 U.S. Open for them, um, which wound up being an eventful tournament. Like I was live blogging like the final where Serena called Ava Asteraki unattractive inside, um, things like that. <laughs> um but yeah, uh, so that was that was the the start, and yeah, and then then I started sort of traveling more full time, or sporadically, but eventually full time on the tour in twenty eleven. Sorry, twenty twelve. Went to like the Australian Open. It's my first uh, Grand Slam that year. Indian Wells, Miami, Charleston. You know, just doing a bunch more stuff, and uh, yeah, and been do- had been doing that pretty much all the way through the twenty twenty Australian Open, and then the pandemic hit, and I haven't been anywhere since. But um, in- for tennis tournaments. But uh, yeah, that's that's basically the short version of it. Yeah, and Racket you mentioned came up at some point in the middle there. I think they started in like twenty seventeen. Yeah, it's 16? quite recent, isn't it? Yeah. So uh, yeah, so I I was I did things for I think their second issue for the first time, and then became a got some sort of editory title. So I do occasional stuff. I I do I don't do too too much editing, but I have worked assigning a couple pieces, um, liaising with yeah. some people. Sitsipas, notably, when he's done stuff for the magazine, he work, I, I work with, I'm sort of his point guy there. Um, yeah. And the podcast also started in 2012. Yeah, that's another sort of, like, NCR started in 2012. So a lot of people, I'm assuming, that are listening, um, want to get into journalism and want to 
specifically tennis journalism, if they're into tennis, yeah. um, do you have like any advice or tips for people who want to yeah. go down that path? Yeah, my, my usual advice for that at this point is just like, if you want to write about tennis, just write about tennis, like start writing about it, get a start your own blog or your own site or whatever kids are doing these days uh, in terms of uh, publishing and writing and, and just keep doing it and you'll get better at it through that and it will people will you'll find if you have an audience or you'll hone your voice and see what sort of adds value to that um that space so i think i think and i think it i think being sort of covering more unique topics i think is often helpful like if someone i get message from people like hey can you look at this thing i wrote and usually i'm hopefully able to help uh, or give fee some feedback um but it's like generally not gonna be interesting if you're like like, hey, I wrote this thing about the, you know, Djokovic Federer Wimbledon final. Yeah. Like, yeah, everybody wrote about the Djokovic Federer. Yeah. Like, that's not yeah. like, sure. that's like a tough, tough subject in which to actually make an impression yeah. on anybody. Yeah. Or as mm -hmm. if, you, if you do something on, you know, I don't know, Monica Nicolescu or, you know, something else is a little more avant garde or just different or whatever it is, you know, spe you know, unique. I think it's more likely to get stuff. And you can find your own sort of niche on Twitter. Like, I think. Like Victoria Chiesa, who now works for the USTA, um, and still does some stuff from WTA, I think occasionally. But she, and you started off as a blogger, and I think that she sort of is a good example of someone who gained a lane for herself by doing a lot of stuff on like officiating and rules, and she mm -hmm. sort of made that yeah. her her niche, and that's where she mm -hmm. added value and and differentiated herself. Um, and so, if you can, whatever that might be, um, if you can find something. Whether it's, you know, being really on top of doubles or being really on top of players from a certain country or whatever it is. Um, it's not as covered. And, you know, it, the, the feedback is not, if, if, you, if feedback is really important to you and getting validation is really important to you for it, like that may not always come quickly or sufficiently to match your 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 needs or your ego. And, and maybe it won't work. I mean, there's also just not a ton of jobs, honestly. And, and I, I don't, I don't <laughs> especially now, well, who knows how it's going to come out on the other side of COVID, but like, it's, is not a growth industry. This is not like a, a booming industry, sports writing or newspaper writing or online writing really. So I'm not going to say, oh yeah, it's great. You'll, you'll make it and you'll love it and do great things. There's just haven't been that many people, especially after me, like I was sort of one of the last waves of people where it still was a little more possible, but there's nothing that people younger than me, let's say, at least in English language stuff who are doing it like full time. Like, Tumani is the only person, and he was actually doing it for a long time. Um, at a very young age, he was doing it as, like, a teenager. He sort of developed, like, a full-time career from it, who's in a younger generation than me in the sort of English-language tennis writing sphere. So it's 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 not easy, and it's not a, yeah, it's by no means a sort of, yeah, guaranteed yeah. path to anything. Um, I, I, I guess this kind of, like, line of conversation comes back almost again to, like, the use of social media in, like, modern journalism and modern, like, reporting, like, trying to get your work read by people, trying to get your work out there. Um, and, like, in terms of, like, some of the more popular tennis articles, uh, you know, are actually the ones that are received quite negatively by fans. Like, an article will go up and it'll get a lot of traction, primarily because if you look in the comments of it, um, it's actually filled with, you know, fans of whatever player's been talked about or whatever, like, complaining about that, <laughs> about what's going on. I mean, I, it was tough to add up all the positives and negatives because there's so many in both sides of of what social media and Twitter specifically. Like, I'm not really that active on other social medias. I did my first Instagram post in like a year today, um, <laughs> roughly a year. So um, it's just a picture of my dog. It's not that exciting or, or tennis relevant. But <laughs> I don't take too much of 
the sort of Twitter criticism to heart from just the sort of general echo chamber of it. And especially like, of honestly, like tennis fans who like, if I get like a wave of, to use a very like <laughs> plausible example, if I get like a wave of Djokovic fans telling me I'm a bad journalist, I really don't care because none of them are journalists. They're not the ones who make the rules. I don't particularly value their opinions on this or think they have any expertise or know what they're talking about. Like, if it's other people who I do look up to or admire in the industry um, who are sort of ripping on something I've written or tweeted or whatever, like, okay, then I will probably take that more seriously and more to heart. That doesn't happen so much, really. Um, whether they disagree with it or not, they also just don't usually tweet it. Um, and I, I think generally, like, journalists, for the most part, like, understand what I'm doing more than, like, fans. Again, who are, like... Like I said before, fans are always taking a side of athletes on everything. Like, and you'll see with like Djokovic, particularly recently, like his fans just align themselves with whatever he's doing. So like they're all, yeah, because I have to be in lockstep. Like suddenly very pro PTPA, for example. Like they're all like all this like uniony stuff that I don't know if they would feel if it was coming from another person, or very like pro or anti vaccines or whatever else it might be or, you know, vaccine mandating or whatever sorts of stuff they think aligns with the Djokovic philosophy. Like, people bend themselves those ways. You touched on, um, obviously, you touched on fans being swayed by their favourite players' uh, opinions and stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you think that's changed over the last 10 years or so? Like, how do you think tennis Twitter itself has changed? The fandoms have changed? How do you think? Because you've been on here for a while and you've seen the evolution of it, so. Yeah. I think it's made it way nastier. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I don't think there would have ever been possibly, like, the sort of level of animosity that I understand between, like, Djokovic fans and, I want to say everybody else, but particularly, I guess, maybe Federer fans. Like, that sort of level of, of, of nastiness, I don't think it was available in a pre-internet yeah. world. If there was, like, if social media mm. had existed back when, I don't know, like, in terms of like let's say like peak like i don't know hingis versus the williams sisters or something that was like another mm -hmm. like really sort of heated rivalry for a while and then that was a much more heated rivalry than has actually ever really existed between the two guys federer and and mm. Djokovic, who are for all in you know accounts at least publicly always very you know p uh, p uh, positive about each other um, and praising each other um uh i think yeah you see like the sort of the level of like how militant and how combative it gets from people wanting to like tear down the other the other side of, of those sorts of divides. I think it's made it yeah, much mm -hmm. more unpleasant and much more sort of tribal and yeah and, mm -hmm. in in ways yep. that I don't think are I don't think are positive and and just not helpful and and I just don't think it really represents the values like of those players either. I don't think that a joke, I'll mention Joe again because I do think his fan base is sort of uniquely toxic at this point in a lot of ways. Um, I think that uh, I don't think Djokovic wants that. I don't think Djokovic certainly never does any of that on his own. Yeah. Um, and I don't think it really represents him and his values very well uh, to have them be that that nasty. I think Djokovic is a much, much more um, sort of of a peacenik, like trying to get people, everyone to get along and positivity and and good feelings and stuff. And obviously, at the same time, at the same time, he does have his things. He does that are, you know, with with rallying for players and challenging ATP that are more antagonistic, I guess, in some, he can be, or challenging the status quo, uh, but he does it in a way that's that's very, very different from the sort of discourse you get from uh, people doing it with crocodiles in their handles <laughs> in his name. I mean, I, I guess it's good bringing people together, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, so, I, so I, I think I think in that side it's made it, it's made it 
worse. But I think it's also been great that people can like find, you know, and a better use of that word to find their sort of tribes to find people like, hey, like I'm a big fan of Andy Murray, let's say, like, and you can find all these other people yeah. from around the world yeah. who like care about Andy yeah. Murray and and often like often, especially for a player like Murray, yeah. especially for like let's say like especially like non-British Murray fans, let's say, like they probably do have like similar personality traits or similar things about them that would have drawn them to this guy. Um, mm-hmm. and things yep. they appreciate. Um, Pete, I'm sure you found that in, like, Courtney or whoever else you've encountered who's, like, a big Murray guy. There's certain things, you and, and I'm sure that's a great way to meet friends, and the same way that, yeah, online. And that goes for tennis generally, too. Like, tennis is still, in most places, like, a niche enough sport that most of our, like, friends we grew up with weren't big tennis fans. And so just finding people who can speak the sort of language of tennis is, like, finding, again, like, a lost member of your, of your tribe who you can have a conversation with in this sort of, like, obscure language that no one else understands and talk about you know camilla georgie without having to explain what that means for five minutes i think at this point in the episode we're going to move on to talk about a very serious topic um yeah. we're going to discuss Olya sharipova um, and more specifically the accusations uh, that she has made against Alexander Zverev, yeah. um, her ex-partner and current ATP top 10 professional tennis player. You went to interview Olya uh, just uh, just at the end, towards the end of last year, Ben, mm-hmm. in relation to these accusations and her story. And yeah, we we were wondering, was her, her, her post on Instagram, which was how the story was first made public, um, was that when you first became aware of this story, um, or or had she reached out to you before that, or what was the situation kind of leading up? To this? Yeah, I mean, I I saw it. I I do not think I'd heard anything about this before she posted about it on Instagram, in Russian. Um, that Instagram, I, I didn't follow her on Instagram. So then when I when I saw that Instagram post started to trickle over to Twitter, and people were translating it, and she was clearly like saying something, but not totally saying something either. It was it was it was not the clearest Instagram posts, even if it had allusions to abuse and her allegations of abuse against Vera, which she has repeatedly denied. Uh, it was not, like, the easiest to understand. And so, as it started getting some traction, people passing it around and sort of being like, huh, this is, uh, this is not great. Um, I just sort of felt an obligation as a reporter to try to clarify what she meant, to, instead of having this, uh-huh. like, very um, muddled, I think it's fair to say, especially just largely because of the language barrier more than anything. And then she did an interview actually before before she talked to me. She did an interview with a Russian publication, yeah. uh, Championat. Championat, yeah. Um, yeah, that uh, that was more clear and they got more direct answers for things and more details on stuff. Um, but it was still, you know, a Google Translate thing. And so, um, and when I found out that she was close by, that she was in the US, which I did not realize um, that she was in the US. Um, mm-hmm. She's in New Jersey, which is just a couple states over from DC. Um, that yeah, that I could could talk to her, and she was up for talking. Um, I think I got her phone number from somebody who like knew her on Twitter. I forget exactly how that happened, but um, yeah, I I had not been. There were people who were Zarev fans, like big Zarev fans, who had sort of like tracked the public signs of like drama in their relationship in the past year whatever sort of like Mm -hmm. and i i just didn't never cared about that previously but she was making at this point she was making like very serious allegations of of violence and abuse um so yeah i thought it was worth getting right and worth just clarifying what these allegations were against this very relevant tennis star you know who's a just off the u.s open final top 10 player really being groomed as like a future of the sport kind of guy 
um, mm -hmm. and that things felt unsettled too. It's different. I've gotten a lot of, this is not what you asked, but I've gotten a lot of, I think mostly in really bad faith, sort of what about ism, what about ism sort of responses from largely from Zvera fans, um, or Zvera, Zvera defenders. I mean, like, but what about Basilashvili? You never talk about Basilashvili. Like the Basilashvili case is very different. That was already in court before anybody had heard about it. That's part of an ongoing, like, divorce and custody dispute um and so that one yeah. did feel like it was it's and it's also harder to get information out of there i've tried but just like they keep pushing things back i have no idea how the georgian legal system works on any level um it keeps getting delayed because of covid reasons that trial i don't i still don't think it's happened even if it's been in the courts for almost a year now um but uh but yeah but with, but with this one i just saw an opportunity to sort of make it clear and then i, I went and talked to her not sure what i would do and i, I just found her very uh compelling as a as a as a sort of storyteller and i thought that and she had other people there who um you know could sort of back up parts of her story or talk about how they how they saw it and how they saw things unfold um yeah and basically i just sort of gave her space to really in a lot of ways sort of be an edit because almost all the stories in her voice uh in the story the first story for racket so um yeah just sort of to clarify and make more coherent and clear the story that she was trying to tell on her own in that Russian Instagram post. It just was muddled again. So, um, yeah, so I think that did resonate with a, a lot of people, and connected with a lot of people who had, who had not really, who hadn't really struck a chord with or, or really got, you know, connected with or mm -hmm. hit, a, hit a nerve with through just her, her post. Um, um, yeah. I wanted to talk about briefly about Zverev and his reaction to the article. Uh, obviously, he had a PR statement, he read it from his phone, he, in the Paris final speech, he said some bizarre comments. Um, what did you make of his reaction to it? Yeah, I mean, he, he's obviously, he did not, I think he, I think his first denial came out before my story did, I want to say. I can't remember exactly the order at this point, I should know this better, but, um, but anyway, he, yeah, yeah I think it, my story came out during Paris, and so he was asked about it during the Paris event and yeah he, he was obviously he was denying it but he was never he was also not super engaging with it and his like I think from the Paris final like his sort of his tactic was to, sh to act really unbothered by it and to say like I'm still under this mask I'm still smiling yeah and people are trying to bring me down but I'm just still happy and living my best life and sort of you know my success is the best revenge basically was sort of his ethos mm. to it which I think rubbed a lot of people the wrong way honestly. Yeah. Um, and that was seen mm -hmm. as very off-putting for a lot of people. Um, and then, yeah, and then he did change tax quite a bit um, in uh, London a few days later when he was doing his pre-term present. Yeah, he read like a sort of pre-prepared statement off his phone. I don't mm -hmm. have a problem with him. Yeah. I think he did it like not super articulately just he was sort yeah. of like halting and kept looking down his phone but not looking down his phone if he just like if he just said i want to read a i want to make sure i get this right and read a statement like that's yeah, pretty yeah. standard to do mm -hmm. honestly yeah. these things i just think not that we should be really grading him on like the sort of pageantry of it or how you deliver your your monologue but it just sort of it it came off awkward i guess um mm -hmm. yeah but he but he and then more recently i guess he did a few interviews before the australian open where he sort of with like pretty pretty sympathetic german tabloids and stuff who were um, where he again sort of just say he hasn't really ever gotten into the details of any of the, what Oli said. Oli does have a lot of details. Um, yeah. He hasn't really engaged with any of that. Yeah. Um, so so we'll see. I, I I you know I would love to talk to him about it. I would love to. I reached out to him before the story came out to give him with with like details of what was contained within the story. 
um, and from giving a chance to respond sort of line by line if he wanted to. Um, and he did not do that. Um, he just sort of pointed to, I guess, his previous Instagram statement. I guess, so yes, the Instagram statement was up before uh, the story, um, as I remember it. And yeah, so, and he has hired a, a PR guy, it's Bella Anda, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. who's a previous press secretary type for Gerhard Schroeder in German government. So, like, a pretty high level person who also has a lot of tabloid connections uh, to build. Um, so, yeah, so I feel like I'm rambling here, but uh, yeah, I, I, I would love to, to get him to speak up more fully. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's handled it particularly well. Yeah. Um, something I was wondering um, was. Um, obviously, with a topic like this, as uh, as a man uh, yourself, covering a topic of domestic violence against women, um, yeah. how how did you how how did you go about you know a- a- approaching the story? You know, uh, I-, I imagine it must have been a fair bit of pressure to to you know um, write it in the correct way and report it well. Yeah, no, that's that's a good question. I. I definitely did not feel like I had any experience doing a sort of interview like I was driving up to New Jersey to do. Um, I'd never met her and no one I knew had ever met her. Like we didn't really know too much about her also as a person. It was also made it sort of, all I really knew is like basically scrolling through her Instagram really. Um, and that one post obviously and I'm just sort of seeing the rest of her stuff. Um, and I texted her with her very briefly um, where she said she was going like have a, someone there to help her trans help her you know with translations if necessary um but i did talk to to your question i did talk to a couple people reporters um who have more experience in these sort of stories like jessica luther um who's done a lot of this stuff she's based in texas uh, i think i talked to Lindsay gibbs also before that interview who again has okay. done stories who does covers a lot of has covered more sort of violence against women type stories in in sports um yeah just for their advice and they did give some like good useful pointers for basically you know just which is i think which are largely just good advice for interviews generally which i'm not always the best at following um just about you know just like listening just like not interrupting letting them you know talk and you know yeah just basically just sort of pretty like ways to say hands off for the most part while still you know trying to clarify stuff and not having the wrong reaction to things that they're saying which i don't think was actually really ever an issue in uh in that in this hours we spent together in, in New Jersey that I remember, but it was definitely useful getting yeah a sort of primer from them on uh, yeah there's people who I did I did definitely feel like it was and that's outside of my comfort zone in terms of what I've done previously in my career it wouldn't be a comfortable interview for anybody to use that word yeah but um, that definitely did help I will say the one thing that I think people sort of underestimate about my job or the tennis beat is you want, do you want to doing a lot of different kinds of reporting within just covering tennis like you do profiles of people you can i do like more investigative stuff than most people probably um you can do match reports you can do you know sciencey based stories or like someone's health stories or if a player like i don't know gets cancer which has happened or you know you can has to become like an expert in all these sorts of different stuff or like world politics comes up like you do have to you know cover a lot of different bases even just to cover something that seems as sort of limited as uh, tennis if you're trying to really understand the sport, this global global sport with lots of different men and women involved. Yeah, one, um, well, one other thing I was curious about was we've, we've already kind of touched on it a little bit already, like in terms of um, Zverev's fans being obviously very defensive of him um, and Zverev, you know, continually pushing back against the legitimacy of this story. Um, he's repeatedly denied it. Obviously, was uh, and obviously as a result, 
of your kind of personal history with Zverev. Um, there was like some claims that you were showing bias, you know, against Zverev. Mm-hmm. Um, was that something that you knew to expect from this, or like that falls into the category previously of me like knowing not who to who's been not to care about? I don't think that any journalist um, was really saying that. Certainly not any journalist I respected um, was was saying that was a meaningful thing. I think the story sort of speaks for itself and has nothing to do. I wasn't trying. The story I think was very intentionally, I think very limited to. Um, you know, just within the lines of, of her account and her story. It wasn't any sort of larger, you know, it didn't even mention, you know, things that happened in the recent past. It didn't mention Adria Tor or, you know, playing while, while symptomatic at the French Open or whatever else, like, I could have done if I was just, like, piling in complaints about Zverev, if it had been, like, a Zverev hit piece. That wasn't what it was trying to be. Like I said, it was just trying to give to give her space and to give her, to let her be more... Um, articulate with her with her story and i think i think people usually saw it for that yes so to the extent those those sort of critiques were out there they were not from they did not really take those to heart or they were not from people who i think had a lot of uh standing to say that sort of thing mm-hmm. what did you how, how did you feel like the the rest of the tour atp and wta tours responded i know a few players did say some stuff in, in support of Olya, and some said stuff in yeah. support of uh, Zverev as well. So what did you make of that? Yeah, overall, it was really quiet. There wasn't a lot of official reaction, just even including players as official. Uh, Daria Gavrilova mm-hmm. came out, you know, very early, I think even maybe before the story, um, before my story, and um, and was supportive of Olya, who I think she had known as a, as a kid in Russian junior tennis. Because um, Olya was a player herself mm-hmm. for a bit, in sort of yeah. in the in the sort of lower ITF levels, or, or younger age ITF levels, yeah. um, if nowhere obviously near as successful as Gavrilova or Zverev, who are both junior number ones. Um, but yeah, overall, I, I got a couple messages from players, like direct messages or, or texts or whatever, from being like, "Wow, I didn't know about this." From ATP and WTA, both I think. But overall, I think the, I think the reaction was pretty, pretty pathetic. Uh, from I, I go, I say more from like the uh, tour officially. I think the yeah. way the tour didn't acknowledge it yeah. at all for, I want to say, I, I have this number somewhere, but like I want to say like sixteen days from her first Instagram post until they put out any sort of statement. Um, mm-hmm. That's a very long time to stay totally silent. And when they did, it didn't even really acknowledge the thing. It's just sort of this like blanket statement of like we're not going to do anything until like a court process has fully run its, its path. And, mm-hmm. and it's just something I, I have a you know later story on this. It's hopefully coming out at some point. It's, it's already should been out by now, but hopefully it's coming out soon. Uh, that um, talks about sort of, you know, how other sports, especially American sports have learned from this with various high profile incidents of domestic violence accusations or, you know, things that are caught on tape sometimes in more extreme cases like Ray Rice, who is a NFL player. Um, and that was really sort of a flashpoint for, I think, domestic violence and sports in the U.S., the Ray Rice tape. Um, yep. But, uh, but um, yeah, but tennis was just really behind. And tennis, this goes for a lot of things in tennis. And it stood out to me more in the past, you know, since getting into this case, like how truly remedial and weak the ATP is on anything resembling like player discipline or player accountability like in any other sport and parts of these are based on how the ATP is structured where it's not a league and players are independent contractors and they only get paid when they play but John Wortham was saying this repeatedly like if this vera of like fact pattern had existed in so the NBA for example like he would have been almost certainly like suspended with pay 
pending investigation. Like the level of sort of specificity and, and claim in, in her stuff would have been taken more seriously. And there's just on an actual practical level, the ATP has not been taking these these charges or charges use that word, these these claims seriously and her story seriously. Um which is frustrating and also and it's but domestic violence, especially a lot of people who know the issue know like plenty of people don't go to the, you know, police for what all sorts of reasons and um it shouldn't it's a very limited way to see that sort of being police or, or nothing or police or not credible, I think is is not a really useful working framework and lots of other sports don't feel that way too like would do their own investigations or whatever and it goes to other things too that i've been i've been more frustrated with with atp recently whether it's like ben i've <laughs> trashed ben pair a lot recently but i'll keep doing it um you know him like him deserving various suspensions for like tanking or spitting or whatever else you know un unseemly behavior unbecoming behavior he's been doing uh on the tour uh in any other sport that would get discipline, it just hasn't. Like the Sam Query thing, like you know, breaking out of quarantine and getting a private plane across the border in defiance of the of the tournament, which really jeopardized that tournament, by the way, in Saint Petersburg. Yeah, yeah. Um, that that went pretty much unpunished is crazy. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Demir Jumer, I don't know if you guys saw the thing that he had like in his qualifying match uh-huh. in I guess Acapulco. Um, I believe it's Acapulco, like where he's like f- physically threatening basically a, a chair empire or demanding to get out of the chair so he can beat him up or something. It's, it's the tone of it anyway. Like that has been not immediately suspended. It's crazy. Like again, any other sport that would immediately get you suspended. There's more examples, you know, like not investigating this very Basilashvili stuff goes into that. Um, I'm trying to think of what else. Uh, there, there's just a lot of like of uh, you know of um, of behavior that's let to let to slide, and I think it makes the tour seem really amateurish and, and unprofessional and just like small time when you're not having accountability for these stars doing visible things to uh, brighten the sport into ill repute. And it's one thing. This is separate. It's sort of my current sort of thought on this. Like it's one reason actually. I think it might. This is not what anyone's really arguing for. But where something along the lines of a PTPA or some sort of outside player organization union type thing might be, I think, useful is if it <laughs> frees up the ATP to actually be more aggressive on disciplining players. If they can yeah. have a more officially adversarial relationship at times with players instead of always trying to have it both ways and winding up with like no discipline at all. Because, yeah, I think I listed like five or six players who I think should have had more discipline than they've gotten recently they really only ever seem to occasionally like ban yeah. curious so i have my hashtag yeah. atp suspend a white guy challenge um we'll see when it happens but uh it's been uh slow gumming so far yeah i was wondering what solution would be for all of the incidents that you're talking about in the domestic yeah. violence policy because i mean there's no teeth to anything that they've no, done. I mean, if they, if they had gone further, it might've been tricky because in the, in the interviews I've done with her and I guess the second one too, which isn't out still yet, but Oya makes it clear. I can say that like, she doesn't really, she's not interested in seeing Zverev punished. It's not really her, her priority. That's not something that she considers, you know, important justice or whatever people might frame it that way, whether it's from the law or from ATP or from whoever his employer might be. Um, and so if they got to a case where, like, they were doing an investigation and Olya wasn't cooperating, that'd be, like, one thing. Um, but there's just been no sort of even effort towards that. And I do think you have to uh-huh. assure people that you're taking it seriously, these sorts mm-hmm. of very serious claims about um, one of your star players. You know, this, like, it's not like this is some, you know, nobody ranked, yep. you know, outside the top 100 
or even honestly like a Basil Ashvili, who's sort of a, a you know a, you know a main draw kind of player, but not like a big star, even though he just won uh, Dubai. Um, and he's won a couple other five hundreds too. But this is about you know um, a big big time guy who's like really one of the faces of your tour. And they clearly did some because like during like Paris Bercy and maybe a little bit during London, like they were really not putting him on social media almost ever. Like they understood something was up with with Zverev and they were sort of shying away from him. Um, but yeah, never on an actual official level. So I just think that I think that it's not sustainable to, to make things that way and to not address things, whether it's both from Zverev and from the ATP, just leaves it unresolved. You know, I think I think in a lot of people's mind that even if it has been you know, several months since the story came out now, almost, gosh, almost like five months since the first Olya story came out, um, that it does still feel, I think, unresolved to a lot of people. That it still does feel like this sort of open, open case, for lack of a better word. Yeah. I, I don't know whether you can talk about this yet, uh, obviously, because your article, your second uh, piece isn't out yet, but you alluded to, I think in one of your tweets, you alluded to other players' stories being involved in that. Uh. Um, would you be able to talk about that or, um, yeah, that's, I, I can say that's not really in the second piece as it, as it looks now. Um, oh. but I did after it came out, I got a few other messages from people with either with firsthand or secondhand sort of knowledge of, of experiencing various abuse or misbehavior or misconduct on all sorts of different range of things, um, from various, both in the ATB and WTA tours, um, stuff and, and looked into those separately. Uh, one of them especially I spent a lot of time looking into and hasn't, not, I haven't been able to get anywhere towards level where I could be, you know, comfortable publishing it yet. Mm-hmm. Um, although okay. hopefully that will, that will change for one of them in particular. Um, but yeah, but yeah, I think it did just sort of, you know, and this is something that Olya's said in the second piece too, that I can say, like when someone comes forward or something, I think it does empower and embolden a lot of people also to feel like, hey, I'm, I'm feel less alone in this. If Absolutely. she can come forward, I can come forward. And yeah. that's something that I yeah. think has been really uh, important to her. And really, that's been the sort of validating sort of, I think, justice for her to put it that way. So that's mm-hmm. been the bigger, bigger yeah. takeaway. It's, it's being heard and having other people feel more comfortable sharing their own, their own stories. Yeah. But yeah, no, I don't, there's not going to be other, other sort of, oh, thank you. Yeah, there's not going to be, yeah, other people in that story. And thank you, okay. Peter. Sorry, I was interrupting you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it was very, very well written. Uh, very uh, powerful, powerful writing. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, like I said, it was almost all, almost all just her. I was just trying to mostly get out of the way of myself and, that and give her sort of the, yeah. the space to to share it. So hopefully, yeah, hopefully again, the the rest of it will be out soon enough. Yeah. And and just as a closing, like when when I've asked you this many times already, but how, uh, when would we expect the the second piece to be out? When should we? I don't know. I don't have an answer. I wish it was already out. Um, uh, yeah. I don't know. Maybe soon. Hopefully soon. Um, I feel bad for Olya that it's taken this long to get out. The second part, because we did the interview back in November, and I had delays on my own. And and then other things came up. And then just sort of after this long, it becomes sort of like a timing question, like what makes sense to to drop it to when it's been this long. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, 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 I'm, I'm very... I really hope that it's out. It's out soon. It's, it's taken... I just want to... I want it to be. I want her to be able to sort of close this this uh, chapter mm-hmm. of getting her her whole thing out there. So yeah, probably yeah. not that she's listening. Probably, but apologies to her again for for how long that part's uh, taken because that was never the never the intention. Even though she did initially want to like do it in uh, two parts, she didn't want to do the whole. It says mm-hmm. at the end of the first piece, like she didn't want to do the whole thing all at all at once. She wasn't feeling up for that for her whatever reasons. Yeah. yeah. Moving on to another serious topic, uh, let's talk about 
COVID and vaccinations. Okay. Um, Diego mm-hmm. was asked about um, vaccinations, um, and he actually responded yeah. on Twitter. Um, and let me read out mm-hmm. uh, what he uh, said in uh, <laughs> English. Hello, everyone. I want to clarify that I responded to Ben Rothenberg in English, which is not my specialty, that I'm going to get vaccinated when my turn comes, that I would not get the vaccine before my family and the people who really need it. Maybe my English was not clear. I wanted to clarify it because perhaps because of answering it in English, I could not experience myself correctly. And he said hug afterwards. And so I want to, of course, put that on the record for Diego. And for others, like, what do you feel um, for the vaccinations with tournaments? Kind of now it seems like they're incentivizing people to get vaccinations. How do you feel about everything surrounding the future of what we're dealing with? Yeah, I was happy to have Diego do that. I mean, it was a very different answer that he gave in Spanish to the one he gave in English. People read it. I mean, it's just content wise, very different. Um, whether that's the language thing or maybe having more time to see how the first answer looked and like maybe rethink it from that level. Uh, whatever whatever journey he, it was to get to the second answer, I think was, was positive. Because I do think, I do think, it's, I'm not someone who thinks it's sort of, you know, it's up to you, it's your opinion. I do think there's like a right answer here when it comes to vaccines and, and public health um, and responsibility towards that. Um, so, which I know people disagree with, but I don't really care about mm-hmm. that again. So not people whose opinions I value. Um, so... Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I was I asked basically, like basically five or six players in a row who come in, came into press on my in Miami that day, which got a relatively random sampling. Although skewed a little bit Eastern European, um, as it went for the people I asked, and I thought I would get a mix of opinions, but really got sort of almost all people who were sort of vaccine skeptical or vaccine negative somewhere on that on that side uh-huh. of the spectrum. Again, Diego change tax in his tweet later but his initial answer was was more on the skeptical side or less less enthusiastic side let's say um yeah so uh that was that was disheartening and just it's an education issue with like it is for everyone in public health and i do think this is with that many people it does reflect more on the on the tours you know for not getting their players probably the right information um and not making it clear and so many of the players again are so self-centered i think is a, is a is a fair word which obviously has negative connotations in most uses and probably can in this in this idea too but just tennis involves a lot of focusing on yourself and what you think it would be best and a lot of them made it sound very transactional yep. like what will oh but if i get a vaccine how does that help me it doesn't help me i still have to I still have to do the bubble I still have to do this and that and i think yeah you're sort of alluding peter towards support i saw today um that like uh monte carlo i think was saying that it would have like less testing or, or some benefit for people who players who already had vaccines, um, which I think is, it's, if you need incentives, that's what like, I think Rublev and Svitolina said that in their answers, like I would still have to quarantine. I still have to do this and that. So like, what's the point? Like if players need incentives to get vaccines, like fine, we are in a situation right now where like vaccine availability is definitely not uniform yeah. around the world. And the rollout is very different in different countries. And so, yes, is it like fair that, you know, let's say an Argentine player, if, if they're behind on their vaccine, I'm not exactly sure what their situation is, but Diego made it sound like they're relatively behind on their vaccines compared to like the US or some other countries or UK. I know it's, it's doing pretty well in yeah. terms of the rollout of vaccine compared to a lot of places. Um, is that unfair that, you know, maybe Argentine players would have to, to do quarantines or more tests or whatever? Like, yeah, it's unfair. But I also do think that like, as because the tour is insisting on playing on through this whole pandemic time, 
that you should do things that, you know, as they make sense. And vaccinated players probably should have privileges and benefits. And vaccinated people in, in society, you know, as this happens, like, you know, slowly but surely should be able to do things or have access to stuff um, that unvaccinated people through choice or through waiting in line can't do. Like if there's this sort of, you know, indoor dining at, at restaurants or movie theaters, whatever else it may be, there's sort of, you need to prove vaccination to be able to do. Like I personally don't have a, don't have a problem with that, but I think that's part of, that's sort of like this sort of awkward middle phase that I don't think people have really thought through and everything in tennis is particularly in, and in the world in the past year has been kind of happening on the, on the fly. Um, so we'll see, we'll also see how like at various, the, the thing again with like the tour remaining a tour during this time is like pretty much, especially in Europe, like every week you're going to be in a new country um, for tournaments or every tournament you'll be in a new country anyway. Um, and so if France requires to say vaccines for like anyone to, you know, play in the French open or to, you know, if you don't, you have to quarantine for a week or whatever. I think Australia is already, Australians already think that's going to be the case for 2022 Australian open. Like if you don't get the vaccine, you're going to have to do the two week no. hard quarantine <laughs> again. But if you do the vaccine, you won't have to do that. Um, so maybe that will incentivize players seeing that on the horizon or whatever. It's sort of a, again, a rambly answer, but, um, yeah, I, I, I hope players get the vaccines, hope the message gets through to them that it's a good thing for themselves. Also just frame it selfishly if you need to, like if you're a player, you know, the latest Finalinas in the world, do you want to test positive for coronavirus on the eve of the French open and have to pull out? Like, wouldn't you want the vaccine just for, to protect your own playing ability? Like just do it for yourself. Forget about, you know, grandma or whatever, <laughs> just like do it for yourself. Yeah, no, that's 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 fair. Um, looking at the coronavirus pandemic more like generally, um, over the last like you know year and a half now, which is weird. Um, like looking at how like kind of players have been behaving in this time period. Um, there's been like plenty of examples of players who've like been caught bending rules of 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 quarantine. Zverev is an example of that, but I feel like we don't want to be talking about him anymore in this episode. We're done. Um, talking about him um but yeah up until up until literally today um there was the case there's a case of uh, Sitsipas. i think he's been fined at the tournament um going on in miami currently for for yeah breaking like the bubble quarantine rules so yeah just wondering like what, what are your thoughts on you know how players have kind of been behaving in this time yeah it's been very mixed this was a big sort of talk about uh um talk during um uh yeah last summer basically and just seeing it ranged in all sorts of ways like i was disappointed in players for how many of them immediately stopped paying their coaches that was something that really uh struck a nerve with me uh last spring how pretty much as soon as the tour stopped they all stopped paying their coaches and i thought that was uh again incredibly self-centered and just rules people who who you know devote so much of their time and energy to these players and their and their careers and their goals and their well-being so they would so quickly get cut off uh, the second there was a bit of adversity. And that was even before we knew, like, there was going to be five, six months of a pause. Um, uh, so that was that was disheartening. Um, and then, obviously, like, the whole Adria tour and, like, the post-fallout with that and, like, players traveling after being exposed to that was, was again, disheartening. Um, but also, at the same time, like, people have told me, and this is true, and people have tried to remind me, and I do think this is right, like, lots of people were quietly doing the right things. Um quietly you know staying home and being safe and taking precautions and whatever else and like so it's hard to paint with too broad a brush with this diverse of a pop with this, with this disparate of a population you know everyone's kind of doing their own thing and there's it did not 
it's there are plenty of public examples of bad behavior uh, during this, but largely it's been okay. And that goes for like you know all the heat that the players were getting in Australia for being seen as like complaining. Like it really was a, a small group of players who were the vocal who were the vocal complainers, and the, most of them were are getting on just fine and being you know being uh, dutiful quarantiners or and being very, very positive about Australia. Um, yeah, but tennis players like aren't just are not uh, the most plugged into the world. Like they're not, you know, they're not super up on on current events. Again, it's broad brush talk. Like they're not super up on current events, and certainly they didn't, I don't think they understood a lot of the context around Australia, particularly when they're going into that environment and what their very unique COVID journey has been. Um, yeah, so it's been it's been mixed. It's been definitely mixed. It's been dis- disappointments. There've been some positive things too. I'm sure, um, but yeah, it's been. Uh, it's I been guess mixed. it's kind of like one of the things where you like hear about all the negative stories. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's been it's been you know I don't think tennis has done particularly well. You know, I, I even organizationally, I just don't I don't think that tennis has shown the amount of cooperation and imagination um, in terms of finding solutions that most other sports have. Like tennis, still kind of proceeding with this like tour. We're basically following essentially the same calendar as every other year at this point. For 2021, it's been more or less the same. No Indian Wells, obviously, so things shifted a little bit from that, and I'll show you it was a couple weeks later. Um, but it's been the same. It's still you know single elimination tournaments and a new one each week, and often on different continents or countries each week. And I just wish there had been a way for tennis to cooperate and get together and do something along the lines of some sort of, you know, fixed bubble, you know, playing in one place, not having to have travel, setting up some sort of tennis camp or tennis island or whatever you want to call it, um, and having people play there and making it safer and, and cheaper and easier for players and for TV and everything. There's just so much, so much cost. Like, I'm sure, like, the Miami Open is losing tons of money with how they're running the tournament mm-hmm. this year, even with the very reduced prize money package, because they're really not selling very many tickets. They can't sell very many tickets. I don't think, I don't even know if they're me- re- reaching their capacity limited like 800 capacity i'm not sure if they're hitting that or not um they're very pricey tickets because of that's what they feel like they have to do if there's such a small supply um uh and yeah and like australia i'm sure lost so much money this year the australian open uh with not being able to have fans not getting the kind of fans they were allowed to have just people weren't comfortable coming and they couldn't draw from a very wide geographic area it was pretty much just basically melbourneians who were coming to the tennis um and all the stuff they did in terms of flying players in on charter planes and putting them up in hotels with, you know, hundred dollars worth of food plus other food and training equipment, all this stuff, like that's not sustainable. Like and but if you're gonna do that, why not have the tenant why not have the tour play Melbourne for three months, you know? Why not like really make that investment worth it? And they haven't done that. So yeah, I'm just I'm not impressed overall with the level of uh the lack of lack of creativity, the lack of coming together and, and making something uh, better. Yeah, hopefully we can kind of like see some kind of change at some point soon. Um, do we? Did we want to move on to talk about the PTPA now? Uh, we're uh, we're covering all the topics today. We're going through them all. Um, so yeah, <laughs> let's uh, let's go for it. Let's talk about the yeah the PTPA. Um, sure. So yeah, Ben, you've been quite uh, quite vocal. You've you've tweeted out a few times in regards to what your kind of like stance is. Um, 
on 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 what the PTP is um, and like what it stands for and yeah some players have given their feedback to you Ryan Harrison kind of called you out a little bit um, I don't on... even think he was really calling me out in that he wasn't calling one. him no? out to cut you off no 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 yeah. okay yeah responding with sort of like it was sort of more of like an open letter I and mean, he has called me out on previous things because he's got you know a lot of time oh. I guess, these days <laughs> but he um, which is fine. I certainly spend plenty of time on Twitter. I can't knock somebody else for spending yeah, time on Twitter. You're on social um, a lot. Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. I'm on social a lot. Um, uh, but uh, on that, actually, I wish that the clip was more audible in the clip of the French Open, where I said that back to her at some point, and she started to burst out laughing, Serena. Um, but uh, on PTPA, yeah. So, sorry, you, I, did I cut you off there? I think I interrupted about Harrison. No, 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 no. Just like, kind of like looking for your lo- looking for your like thoughts on it and like yeah, like what your kind of opinions on it at the moment are. I don't think my thoughts on PTPA are honestly all that well defined because PTPA is not mm-hmm. all that well defined. My thought on it yeah. is that like, as someone who is tasked with explaining things in the sport and giving context to things, that's where PTPA I think probably frustrates me because it's still so undefined and so unclear what their plan is and what they are and what they aren't and i think it's it's for something that's got introduced in you know a relatively splashy way with that on-court photo (laughs) seven months ago now yeah Mm -hmm. more than seven months ago now that we're in april um it really we still just don't know very much about it it's it's very uh yeah it's just it's just very you know unformed and amorphous and um and i would like i I think they have some possibly some good points but they just haven't done anything that's been super coherent in terms of their communications so my only judgment of it and my opinion of it is that i i just can't form an opinion yet i'm frustrated that i can't form an opinion on it yet when it's still being in its own way active and sort of aggressive i guess even in terms of like recruiting or certainly like what possible was doing it was a very aggressive moment on court in miami yeah, yeah. um with how he was how he was coming out attacking uh the whichever one of the i'm not actually not sure which executive he was attacking there there's a couple of godenzi um the but CEO? maybe godenzi he said chairman i forget godenzi's chairman or chief executive oh, maybe anyway, not. Okay. Um, so it might have been the other guy um mm. but it's it's i would like them to just have more more structure and basic things you do when you're starting like a union movement you know like having i mean a manifesto i guess is the word you usually use for that but something like you know a statement of like why we're doing this what we're gonna do like what our goals are like why what our sort of grievances are with the status quo you know and that stuff has only been really articulated very sporadically and we just don't know like what the ptpa stands for and what their goals are and i feel like they clearly have some traction because clearly there's a lot of unhappiness or dissatisfaction with the ATP among its player ranks and the fact that this even this really undefined group got a lot of initial support means people are excited for something that's not the ATP. So that that speaks well for the players movement idea and poorly for the ATP, I guess. It's some, even something this loose would get so much uh, so much traction. Um, but still, they just haven't done anything to move with that. And, and it's not, you know, Djokovic and Pospisil are still full-time players on tour. Like, it's not really... I don't think they're especially well equipped or they don't, and they don't have the background in any of these sorts of issues or the, or the education and, you know, business or whatever else or labor that you would need to sort of really do something well, but they could hire people or find people certainly in this time. So, and maybe that will come, but it's been, it's been unimpressively slow yeah. 
the the lack of the lack of uh, they don't here. have a formal education on it. So. Yeah, exactly. Like, like Serena would say, formal education. But I, uh, I don't think that. I think that they're very possible. I'm not unsympathetic or or closed to the idea of you know a player union being a possible good idea and a better structure for the sport for various reasons, intention intended and unintended. Like I said about the discipline earlier, like I but. They're not even sure if they're they're not even really calling themselves a union yet per se. They're still leaving everything like they're trying to have it kind of always so far, and it's just amorphous. And I would like some more definition, yeah, PTPA. So like if we're kind of like viewing this as, or if you're viewing this as like a kind of like false start for the PTPA, if you mm-hmm. will, like if if that's what if that's what we're calling it, um, yeah. If if they turned around like tomorrow, um, with like a hard and fast like you know top five things that they they want to achieve, could it still be uh like a a successful like an kind of organization in your eyes? Is is that something that they could still be or? Well, at that at that point, I would get to judge it on the merits of whatever they come out with. You know, mm-hmm. like then you can look at it and what it actually means. But for right now, I don't think you can have a decided opinion on PTPA because they haven't they haven't publicly decided anything. So I think we're all sort of waiting and yeah, and just the fact that it's yeah, foul starts a good term for it. Like, you know, seven months in, still really nothing to point to. Um yep. is yeah, is uh frustrating. Yeah, someone again who's tasked with trying to explain things and trying to put this in context. Specifically as a journalist, I feel like I'm I've been ill served by the PTPA's <laughs> uh, rollout style. I'll say that. Can you talk about the T7 working group and what that oh, yeah. might entail? I actually don't oh, know much yeah. about this. Um, but if that involves more cooperation between, you know, the powers to be in tennis, that's that's good. I do think that something... I talked about this on the podcast I did recently with uh, David Yaffe Bellany. He wrote a long piece for Bloomberg about uh, the sort of player... The disorganization in tennis and the sort of lack of cohesion and how things would be better. I do think that basically the tennis needs to unite somehow and get everything. It's too fragmented right now. And with every individual tournament and with all the seven kingdoms, you know, basically the four grand slam federations and then the ATP, WTA and ITF all having their own sorts of goals and agendas and methods and stuff. It's like, it's just, you can't grow the sport that way. And it's also, and David focuses on his piece in Bloomberg, like dividing up all that stuff from just a, like a TV rights perspective means the this, this sport is earning way less money than they could be if it was all packaged as like, capital T tennis and you could sell a network the rights to all of it at once for example it would be a much more valuable product than it is in uh, in small pieces so yeah um, I, I don't again I don't know much about T7 but the idea of greater cooperation between governing bodies as a, as a vague idea I'm I'm into but can't speak too directly to, to T7 out of interest what did you think about Roger tweeting about Emerging the ATP and the WTA tours. Yeah, this is the one thing I asked Roger about when he was in, uh, in <laughs> for his comeback event. Um, probably should ask Roger, but asked about the the, the WTA uh, merger thing. Um, yeah, uh, that seemed very planned. Yeah, Roger's not the kind of guy who just like randomly gets on Twitter and like sort of muses about stuff. So clearly, there have been some other talks that have been going on. Mm-hmm. Um, with with him and then especially especially the way Nadal responded to it and this like very yeah. stilted like yes Roger I also agree this would be a strong idea for yeah. our, like it was very clearly like sort of 
uh, choreographed. I was actually, I want to say I was like asleep when it all happened. So I like woke up to like all this like Federer, Nadal, Federer, Nadal, WTA chatter. Yeah. So I sort of like am immediately like a little bit suspicious of a too strong word, but I'm curious like what the real motive for that was. I, I, in his answer in Dubai, I believe Federer said basically like it didn't get anywhere those conversations. Like maybe the conversations are starting, but like, I mean, there's been talk about a tour merger for a long time and he is a, a big person to come out and advocate it and the star players really do have a lot of sway um, in these sorts of things and their opinions for better or worse. Um, but yeah, I don't know that it actually meaningfully got off the, uh, off the ground. Um, and that, but, but what, again, that, that goes to my answer previously about the, the pandemic, like this, this stoppage was a great moment. It's a great opportunity for some sort of reset, like for as, as fragmented and broken as things are, tennis if it had the the leadership or the creativity or the cooperation to pull it off could have really come out of the pandemic looking very different and and reformed and and improved and better and i don't think it really capitalized and still is not capitalizing on this uh on the possible opportunity that this uh crisis causes since this is a mainly murray uh podcast um i'd love <laughs> to for more talk Andy about murray talk uh, here guys <laughs> interview excuse me um interactions with andy um, and okay. your thoughts about uh, the Australian Open uh, press conference that you were at. I interviewed Andy a bunch, actually, definitely by far the most of any big three guy and big four guy in terms of um, one-on-ones. Because um, he used to do this thing with the New York Times uh, during the U.S. Open where he would do interviews with like a sort of like Q&A with the Times after every match. Um, and so... This guy, Greg Bishop, did it the first year. Then I actually did it the one after. It was in 2012. So it was after he won the US Open final. That day, I did the one with him afterwards. We were, like, walking on the court. And he, like, pointed, like, showed me, like, where the ball mark was for where Djokovic's last shot had landed out just behind the baseline and stuff. <laughs> amazing. Um, and then we did a lot of, like, yeah, we did a lot of, like, chats and various topical stuff. And I was actually, like, I think probably more... Um, because it's, again, my sort of, you know, pot-stirring nature. Uh, it's sort of more, like, pointed <laughs> stuff. I talked to him about, a little bit about, like, you know, like, doping. I mean, there was a doping-themed one about, like, his concerns about that. Um, there was one about sort of, like, Scottish identity that came, that we did, like, shortly before the referendum happened, I guess, in 2014. I think the independence yeah. re- referendum was, 2013, yeah, 2014. Yeah, we, uh, yeah, 2014. We know all about that. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, and things like that. Uh so that was um that was really cool again to spend sort of time talking with him one on one and seeing him in a different uh in a different uh light and and I've talked to him again separately he was i <laughs> fittingly and i I was the first person he sort of told about his his change of heart on best of five uh when he started talking after he did the uh the Potra Nadal commentary <laughs> and it just ruined best of five for him forever having to sit in the box for that long mm-hmm. um so uh and they've come out like really strong at like in that I'm sure you guys saw like the clip of him and Malfi's talking about it on oh. Twitch. Like he was like more and more articulating all the reasons why he thinks it's a bad idea. Um, so I'm very happy to have him in the, uh, in the choir for that. <laughs> um, but, uh, <laughs> so one um, area we disagree with. I know, I know, I one know. Area. So, that, so that, that's more dissonance there, but, if, and Djokovic actually too, Djokovic also is, is pro best of three and his fans <laughs> aren't really supportive. So that's the one thing where fans are willing to, um, to, to part, part yeah. with that. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> like I said, I fully admit that it's still not within like hardcore tennis fandom. It's still not a popular idea. Um, I, I fully yeah. understand that, but uh, um, yeah, Murray's been. Is, it, I think he's a super, super compelling person in press. I think that he's uh, very um, honest 
uh, he's not uh, someone who you ever feel like you're not getting a a good mm. or full answer from. He does listen to questions. He does seem like he's engaged in the process, and he has to he has to you know tap or tiptoe through an absolute minefield in terms of like what he deals with in terms of British media and like all the sort of like possible traps there would be on different stuff. Obviously came up early in his career. Corey talks about this a lot, like early in his career with uh, him, you know, saying he was rooting against the English soccer team or whatever. And how that was like a big, uh, big flare up. It's just so stupid. Like who cares? Like, and also like, of course, like I don't think many Scottish people are rooting for the English soccer team. Like nobody, no, definitely not. So like, (laughs) so why that was even news. And this happened, they do this a lot. They, they, they really do try to like, early on cannibalized their own players in this way that I just find ridiculous, mm-hmm. like the British yep. press. Um, like, even with, like, a more recent example, like Katie Bolter, um, a couple years ago, pulled out of the French Open late and got, like, half her prize money, um, even though she had, like, kind of a long-term injury, potentially. And, like, the British press was, like, so harsh on this player who's ranked like 96 or something has not had a very long career it's not very made all that much prize money on taking this like prize money which was like pretty rightfully i think hers by law definition is in terms of you know she had earned that ranking to get the direct entry into the french open um but they were sort of pillaring her for like you know misleading or being like sort of a you know money grubbing thief or whatever i was like just let let it go like no one cares like why are you like dragging this like injured athlete through the mud for getting half of her french open prize money like it just seemed it all just seemed so it's like such a bad you know talk about like pot stirring like i do feel like i try to pick my 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 spots you know to and, and hopefully try to to punch up to the extent that's uh-huh. an expression uh, you know mm-hmm. people in power or whatever um but going after katie bolter just seemed nonsensical there um and there's been other examples of that obviously you know laura robson dealt with her own various flare-ups and and quotes that got blown up and uh uh, Kanta, Kanta, Kanta has a very tense relationship with the yeah. very honestly like yeah. weird like those are I kind of like going to those press conferences they're so awkward the Kanta the press conferences um, which are which are both she, and she's someone who's I think way less adept at dealing with it than, than Murray Murray makes it look at this point relatively easy but it's not yeah. easy I mean he's like he's very very deliberate and um, careful and, and, and smart about how he says things and, and guarded and, and you know once bitten, twice shy, and all those things too. But, but at the same time, still manages through all of that not to have really shut down and not to have sort of closed off in a way that you would expect. And he gives a lot of time to the British press too. I mean, he does uh, historically does these things called the after his main press conference. He does what they call the afters, where he talks to call British reporters um, for like more extended, exclusive to British press quotes um, that they get and they use in later stories. So he's been very accommodating and sort of engaged with them. Um, in a way that I think has been a lot of work for him, but also been, I think, overall pretty effective in, uh, in being there. And they still, I'm sure the British press still has their occasional frustrations with Murray, like, you know, when he pulls out of tournaments and doesn't tell them, or there's, I think that happened with Australia one year, like, they thought he was coming and we didn't announce it, or I don't know, whatever it is. Like, it's not perfect, but it's, uh, um, yeah, still, I think, a pretty pretty impressive working relationship. And his, he and his uh, PR guy, agent uh, Matt Gentry, deserve a lot of credit for managing that, as well as I have. Yeah, what what was it like being in the uh, in the press conference in Australia? Was yeah, that, the, so the press. Yeah, is that pretty? Like, did you did did you know anything like in advance of us knowing like about it happening? Not or? at all. I don't think Andy knew in advance. Honestly, I think it was just sort of like I think he had just come off the day before or maybe earlier that day. I think it was the day before. 
having like a really bad practice match with Novak Djokovic. I think Djokovic yeah. Yeah, like, yeah, k- killed him in, in a practice match. Yeah. That was like sort of open to the public, yeah. I want to say. Um, yeah. And it was like love and one or something, just like not close. And he'd been bad. And he was clearly just like feeling very down. And he'd had lots of health problems. And he was still in a lot of pain. Um, yeah, and I forget the exact words of what he said. But he said basically like this could be his last tournament or you know, likely to forget exactly what he said. I should find the exact words, but whatever he said, and he sort of broke down in, you know, in tears and left, left the room for a bit as he was doing it. Um, but it, yeah, he it said, did sound, the way I he think said he it, said, it way, he said he, yeah. he wanted to continue until Wimbledon and he uh-huh. wasn't certain he would be able to do that. So that was yeah. right. Yeah. So the, yeah, he said Wimbledon is a possible, yeah. like at the latest Wimbledon of my career, basically it's kind of how he, how we all yeah. heard and how he said it. Um, mm. And so then like, we, you know, then people started cranking out, you know, the, the Murray obituaries for his career kind of stuff or like here here's the end um but he uh which he I, I think he whether he meant that in that moment and then just sort of re reconsidered later what his journey was in that week and this may be covered in the documentary a little bit I want to uh-huh. say yeah. yeah it is yeah like it's very much like his wife Kim yeah. kind of says oh and then he and then Andy changed his yep. mind yeah <laughs> like yeah, yeah and, which is his, his prerogative <laughs> to do I'm not you know trying to rush anybody out of the sport um who's still, you know, a good citizen of the sport and still, I think, adds a lot of value and, and still has potential. Yeah, being in the room was, was really was really striking and, and, you know, sad, and you're there with this, and there's still some division area in the room, and they're still up behind a podium, and you're not that close to them physically. But knowing Andy and, and having some idea what he'd been going through to see him seemingly sort of, you know, break in this moment. I, and, and I got to say, like, I came on the tour covering it full-time in 2012, and I really have not had a lot of experience with top players retiring. Like, just in that window, like, big stars have not stopped playing. Like, mm-hmm. the guy, you know, Federer, Nadal, the Williamses, you know, Sharapova, I guess, recently stopped, was one of the bigger people who did retire in 2020, and Wozniacki, yeah. but, those are, but those are not quite as big, and Sharapova had been a long sort of downslide in terms of results yeah. for, you know, a year or so. And just and so that was pretty clear, you know. And she was about to slip out. I think she was outside top three, like three hundred when she finally retired. But um, yeah, um, yeah. But it's it, so just I haven't had moments to sort of anticipate that or, or read that. But it did catch a lot of people off guard. I think it probably caught Andy off guard too, because like he said, he he he's still out there, still being an active player more than two years later, um, which is great. Mm-hmm. Um, I really you had mentioned the documentary. I, the documentary was really good. Um, definitely recommend to people. It is available in the U.S. even if it's not super prominently. Uh, marketed here, but it is on Amazon Prime in the U.S. At last mm-hmm. I checked, so uh, yeah, so yeah, it's a uh, yeah, it was memorable for sure. And just covering it that way, and then feeling like that match was great. Actually, that match against Batista Gut and the crowd was so for him, and mm-hmm. seeing all that. And then I thought I thought the the Mark Petchy encore interview was really kind of odd and like not handled especially well. Yeah, pretty awkward. <laughs> yeah, but stunted and weird. And and Andy and seemed to want, Andy at that point already seemed to sort of have misgivings about the whole like. I'm not yeah. done kind of thing. Yeah. And they played this tribute video for him, which was really bizarre and like kind of just like cringy and just like a little bit too like jokey. There were some like players like trying to be like a little bit jokey in it. It just, it just, not, it just it didn't hit the right notes. Any of that for a moment. Um, I felt like, mm-hmm. um, and I think maybe Andy felt that too. I, I don't know. My aides didn't want to go out with that. Even if it was, you know, it was funny. It was, everyone was saying as we were watching that match in the press room, people were getting sort of, you know, caught up in it emotional. The people most emotional was seeing Jamie uh-huh. there. 
because Jamie like never comes to Andy's matches and Jamie was there in his like you know yeah. olive green shirt like he was just back from army or something and uh yeah it was it was a uh, it was quite a scene but uh yeah but seeing Andy after that um I remember seeing him when was it I guess it was one of the Queen's Club comebacks I, I've, I've covered two of his Queen's Club comebacks at this point so he did um, one I think he played Karyos yeah, and one then... played Kyrgios, and then one, the next one he did the doubles with, with Lopez. Yeah. And I think it was after the second one, I guess it was after the second one, seeing him, like, get up and... Maybe it was both. I don't know. I forget which one this would have been. But he, like, got up from the podium and, like, walked away, and he wasn't limping at all. And I just realized how used I was to yeah. seeing him, like, yeah. always, like, limping yeah. and always just being sort of ginger and just seeing... And not really always appreciating in that moment, like, how much he was in, like, constant pain through all that time. Mm-hmm. Um, but really noticing it there. Um, but Andy's been Andy's been fun. He's I, I think again he's somebody who is engaged and in his own way. I think also um, we share a little bit of ethos in that we're both sort of challenging certain things about the establishment of the sport. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly the way he's he's been about women's stuff as a top men's player has been pretty uh, striking and and largely unprecedented to have a, an active top male athlete in a sport, even a sport like tennis, which we all think of as being such a gender paragon of cooperation and greatness and stuff like Andy's even if Andy's not saying anything that extreme or that like bold really just the fact that he's like yeah a top sure a two-time you know Grand Slam champion is able to coach a male player like that was already seen as like very transgressive in yeah. uh in the men's tennis world in the male sports world so mm-hmm. yeah so he's done a lot of things there and and uh has a you know playful sort of jokey irreverent side and can make jokes about stuff with me or other people in the hallway that sort of shows that he's very much on top of uh yeah on top of sort of this, this all the stuff we talked about he would have opinions about all of it sure i'm sure he has ptpa opinions uh-huh. somewhere yeah i don't know what they are but i'm sure he has them. <laughs> <laughs> like while we're on the like subject of of press conferences um how how have you found like you know being in being in a yeah. virtual press conference uh during like covid times like is it like in any way preferable to like a regular press conference well, or it, it just it, it's just all very inorganic i mean so many times when like not that it happens all the time but like i do you know see players you know on or have seen past tense at this point talking about being on tour but you know like you know in line at the you know the security check at the entrance of the tournament or in line at the you know in the restaurant or wherever else you sort of chat to people and they see you as being like a human being and being in the same place and you sort of relate to each other differently that way and get a feel for the place and feel for the people and a feel for the vibe of stuff and all that's been very stunted and disconnected in this in this weird year plus now and i do feel increasingly and this is the thing that i think a lot of sports writers have felt like increasingly sort of detached or not on the pulse of the sport or the athletes or the teams or whatever it may be that they cover um because you're just at a remove and you really only see the players in these um you know very inorganic uh zoom things and there's also not very many one-on-one interviews that are happening too much um separately i haven't had there's been a lot of demand for them for editors also it's a different issue but um yeah, it, it just, you feel you're not in the same room as people. You don't have the same connection in the same place. And I don't know what it really, I haven't been to a mid-pandemic tournament yet. So I don't know what it's like really on the ground. I wanted to go to Miami, but they just, it didn't seem like it'd be worth it at all. They weren't letting you anywhere near the players, or the coaches you had to do. Even if you're on site, you had to be on Zoom in the press conferences and stuff in a different location on the grounds um, and wouldn't be able to mix with them at all. So it just, yeah, I, I'm looking forward to hopefully getting back in it and feeling, you know, Less like I'm just sort of taking 
shots or making guesses from afar and more like I'm actually sort of know what I'm talking about because I, I do feel I think a lot of people feel like just less I, ha- I feel in my own way I don't think people are saying this really but I do feel like I sort of have less authority or credibility maybe it's too strong a word but like sort of speak of what it's really like on tour right now because I'm, I'm not there I don't know and usually that's part of the value I can I could add to uh readers understanding of um what it's like because I was there and I was at tournaments and it was around people Finger, so, fingers crossed normality is not far off yeah I, I hope to I I, I want to go over to Europe I I got vaccinated I, I especially once I got vaccinated in in March for the second dose um I felt like very eager to get going get back on it like I wanted to go to Miami I wanted to go to Charleston I wanted to go I wanted to get back I want I was looking for like challengers to go to in the U.S. So I was like I flew yeah. somewhere and um still have not gotten that yet um maybe could go to like a Florida challenger potentially in, in April or um, hopefully go back on tour and like do maybe my normal tour schedule, which is like, was like Rome and then Paris and then some sort of grass worm event and then Wimbledon. But um, I don't know what the access is going to be like. I don't know what travel is going to be like in terms of if I'm able to move to all those countries freely, if it's going to be worth it or not. Like it's still, it's still very unknown and in flux and, editor changes the times and things like that that also make a factor so there's a lot of a lot of unknowns and so hopefully yeah, hopefully i can get back there so i'm sure i'm sure all the players miss me desperately <laughs> <laughs> okay since you love trivia i wanted to play a little game of quotes <laughs> where you might have been in the press okay. conferences or heard these infamous quotes so let's play sure this is so good okay outstanding okay <clears throat> buongiorno tutti is that right <laughs> Um, I'm sorry. I'm nowhere near as talented at languages, so I'm going to stick to English with the rest. Who do you think said that? Someone trying too hard. So it's probably Djokovic or Tsitsipas. Oh my god. Um, <laughs> Novak. I don't know. With languages. He is good at Italian, actually. He uh-huh. does speak Italian yeah. pretty well. Um, I would say Tsitsipas, but so I don't this know. This was geared towards uh, Novak as Andy won yeah. uh, Rome against Novak in 2016. Yeah. So Andy yeah. said that. Yeah, yeah. That's cute. Oh, and the trophy ceremony. Okay. Oh, it was a trophy ceremony uh-huh. quote, though. Yep. You said these were press. That's cheating. That's well, not, that is, or that's heard not press. these infamous quotes. So um, this okay, is a, okay. I was um, there for that. I was there for that match. Uh, that you probably will okay. know. Uh, <clears throat> so, um, no. I think she speaks like 25 languages. I heard. So, no. <laughs> I was definitely in the room for this. This was this was Garvini Muguruza. Uh-huh. And I think people know. I don't think people understand like the sort of timing of this. Obviously, that clip gets shown all the time, or is is got memed. But like she had just previously left, crying the room in Murray esque fashion, um, right before that. And she got asked a question about it, and she broke. And then she like came back, marched back into the room, and then delivered that like line on her like second attempt. So it was very much like a premeditated shot. Yeah. It wasn't just a spontaneous mm-hmm. answer. Yeah. She sort of came in in there and yeah did that. And and really, really. Uh, Muguru is sort of a fascinating player because she's like I still don't feel like we know her super yeah. well. I feel like she's not the most open and and has a bit of mystery to her, yeah, um, in yeah. a lot of ways. But but that sort of yeah, that definitely kind of was such a uh, successful diss <laughs> that really just resonated people. That's like one of the all time sort of like recent put downs in tennis for sure. So here's another one that I actually really love. I have no idea how I found it. <clears throat> Life starts at twenty one. That's a new quote by me. In the way it's said. Okay. Or, or, oh my god. Oh, it's it, obvious it's, who it's, this is. It's so obvious. obvious but, I mean, it is so is, obvious. Again, I want to say it's it a pause, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 
I was gonna say Sitsipas. I was thinking Sitsipas. Obviously, but I've been wrong with Sitsipas uh-huh. the first time. But he does have a very distinct way of speaking that I I really enjoyed Sitsipas because he's he's just like he's so not concerned with like conforming uh-huh. or just following yeah. the normal script yeah. for better or for worse. He's like very much out there and just like doing his own thing and trying to be different and creative or trying to be himself. Trying to like just not worrying about what the normal sort of playbook is, right? For all these sorts of stuff, and that I find that way more organic. It does get him in trouble sometimes for sure. In various ways, but I I find it very very refreshing. Just all of his all of his approach to that stuff, and not being afraid to be corny or whatever it is. Like in that case, you know, I could I was gonna say this last but I also that sounds like something I could possibly be sort of like a sort of yeah. Sloan thing too. Sloan was my was my second guess for that one. Had Sloan's been great at it could have been a Sloan. Sloan can, Sloan can definitely have her moments and quotes. Yeah. Yeah, I actually sorry, I had I had a question. Um, so this is probably going a bit off tangent. So. Medvedev and Djokovic played the Australian Open final, and before that, they were yeah. saying some stuff to the press uh, beforehand um, about each other, about how Djokovic was saying that he was um, going to give his best or something, that the next gen are not going to come at me just yet or whatever. Um, we're still ahead or something. I don't remember what exactly he said. Yeah. And then Medvedev says something like, I don't have all the pressure on me. It's all on Novak. So what, what did you think about that uh, exchange I thought that was all pretty fair. I mean, I think like and the way I think I was in that Djokovic presser, I believe after he played Karatsev, I, I think it was there, or at least I read it. Like he was basically saying like the questions were all like, "Oh, next chance coming, next chance coming," which is kind of those questions for years. And next chance is still not here. Let's be honest. So he's sort of being like, "Well, not yet." Like I think it's just he's saying like, "I'm not going to you know hand over the things." And people forget because of how close that match was not. Yeah. yeah. In the end. But, like, people really were giving Medvedev a real shot yeah. at winning that match because he had been on this long mm-hmm. winning streak. He'd beaten Djokovic in that winning streak yeah. before. He'd won a couple matches against Djokovic recently. And so I think... But then Djokovic was just great and Medvedev was not great in that final. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I think that was relatively normal sorts of banter. And, you know, I do hope that, like... And it's something I think you get with Kyrgios and with Medvedev, too. Like, the sort of, I think, overall, the big three, big four... Mauricio Big Four um, era I was like often like very very deferential and polite to each other and press all the time in a way that like I think uh, could can come off like very dry too at a certain point and so like little basic sorts of like that's not even trash talk but like little you know sort of more like statements like that I, I have, I have yeah. no problem with I think I it's think. very good yeah. uh, one that I really love uh, from a trophy ceremony uh, is He's okay. laughing. He's an asshole, but that's okay. Oh, this is obvious again. <laughs> yeah, this is Vavrinka. Uh-huh. Yeah. I wasn't there for this. This is Vavrinka about, about Federer and the New Orleans trophy mm-hmm. ceremony. Vavrinka um, actually curses a lot on court. There's been a bunch of moments uh-huh. of him swearing on on-court stuff, um, which he gets away with because he's not a native English speaker, I guess, but he's done it a bunch. Uh, yeah, that was, that, was, uh, that was cute. Another <laughs> trophy ceremony one. This place is awesome, so I'm going to go to Graders after. So you probably okay, know so this is in Cincinnati. Uh huh. So who would have? This place is awesome. I'm going to go to Clay again. This is obvious. I think after. I don't know who this would be. Who's actually. been at the Cincy final? Cincy final. Was it a winner or a runner-up in this in this quote? It's actually the runner-up. So. Okay. It's 2017. That's a clue. Oh. Okay. Dimitrov. Oh, uh, curious. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I don't remember that quote. Okay. I wasn't. I actually had to leave that tournament early. Oh, it wasn't at that match, but, uh, yeah. This is one of my favorites from one of my favorite quote machines. <clears throat> and this is probably, uh, 
one that you might recognize. Um, <laughs> you know there's that commercial yeah. that says if you or a loved one, one has been diagnosed with mesothelioma. mesothelioma yeah. Can you finish <laughs> that's, it? That's, that's, uh, that's Naomi Osaka. Yes. And she's talking about how it's like sucking her head all during practice. Yeah, that quote. Yeah, that's yeah. all I could think about the whole practice. And during the breaks, all I could see was that commercial with that woman running in the field. Yeah, that was, that was early Osaka. Yeah, Osaka's another one who, like Tsitsipas, is very much not following a script. And uh-huh. it's very much... And I think she still has... She's. I think she's more polished and probably a little more guarded now. But she still has, like, um, a, a layer of, like, that sort of, like... And I think Murray has this, too, actually. That they're both, like, really listen and process questions and give really pretty yeah. honest, uh, honest answers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. This one might be easier because it's directed at you. Oh, boy. Really? <laughs> okay. I was going to say you compared me to him. That's messed up, bro. Okay. That's wow. Sloan, I think. Yes. So that's Sloan about <laughs> when I mentioned Bernard Tomic to her, uh-huh. I think. Yeah, because it was when I was writing a story about Tomic getting... Uh, Getting, getting, losing, getting his prize or money losing, withdrawn me, prize for money. after he lost in the first round of, the, of Wimbledon to Sango, which I still think is insane. Uh-huh. Um, that you can just revoke, talk about like a PTBA moment, like revoking someone's pay completely because you don't like how they played after the fact of a match that's complete like wage theft ridiculousness. Yeah, um, and I think that should actually have been a flashpoint, but just Tommy is such an unsympathetic character for many people on tour. Uh, yeah, and, and Sloan mm. plays also, like, Sloan's also been accused of being, like, low effort at times, or just, like, she looks like she's not trying with her style. And yeah. so I thought she was a good person to, mm-hmm. uh, to ask with that, but she definitely took, uh, some umbrage at the, at the time of comparison, yeah. for sure. I remember that well, though. This one might be hard, as Sasha has coached a lot of players. So somebody, uh, said, question about Sasha. And then the player said, here we go. He gets triggered pretty easily. He gets triggered pretty easily? Isn't the uh-huh. quote? Yeah. About Sasha Bayan. Uh-huh. Um, hmm. It's a high-profile player. Is it Naomi again? Yep. Yeah, Naomi. I was going to say, I didn't know there were repeats. <laughs> yeah. I think I was going to guess Naomi. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. I uh, watched a lot of Naomi pressers uh, lately. That's good stuff. Um, so <laughs> this one I really like. I don't know why. But I'm just going to say it. <clears throat> you guys are unbelievable. I keep doing these things. Why don't I get suspended? I'm close, but I'm still not suspended. <laughs> it's not an issue for me. It's not the first time Oh, that's I did Djokovic. It. Yep. That's Djokovic about wow, the racket throwing this. in... Uh, yep. Was that in Paris or the London one? I think that was... Uh, that was in Paris. Oh, actually, no. Um, it was London. It was when in, he, uh, London. The more mocking he answer, was yeah. Going to talk about. Um, oh, yeah, the answer definitely got like the, the answer definitely got posted after he got defaulted from the U.S. Open. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, this one is probably oh really easy. I don't want to look like I'm going. Oh, to Oh, that was that wasn't at all. Um, uh-huh. About Federer, <laughs> I wasn't there for that. People really enjoyed that one for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this was actually on an interview with a um, late night host. Um, if I were to play Andy Murray, I would lose six zero six zero, and maybe five to six minutes, maybe ten minutes. That's Serena with uh, uh-huh. Letterman, I think. Yep. Yeah. How yep. do you? Oh my gosh, you're really good at this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And this is, I think, one of my favorite ones from this player. You were at the uh, pub last is, night. That is uh, curious to Lucia Hoffman. Yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. That was fun. That was that was a fun wow. presser. It was after he lost to uh, Nadal, but he. 
again, but I think he was like overall in like a pretty decent mood in the, after that. Okay, because like even if Nadal is like one of his more heated rivals, even if that was like their first match after the whole after the podcast comments um, about Nadal that got so much attention on NCR, um, Nick like doesn't take it too seriously for sure. I don't even know whether thinks that, but um, but whether he takes it seriously enough, it's a different issue. But he's not like he's not somebody who I think is defines himself by his wins or his losses which a lot of people on tour do for better or worse, um, often for yeah. worse. And I think that he was just, you know, again, just doesn't see Wimbledon even as being like that serious. And Wimbledon's it's a place that takes itself very seriously, obviously. Do you have any favorite uh, press interview oh, moments? Um, or any that you regret? Any that I regret. Any that you regret. Question. I mean, yeah. the Zoom stuff, yeah, the Zoom stuff, to go back to that, it really is sort of stilted. I don't think we've gotten many great Zoom press moments anybody huh yeah no i remember just like early on in in covering the tour in person like in australia 2012 which was my first grand slam i went to i went to like every press conference i was so excited to be there and like get all these questions and like whether i was working on a story or not i was just asking all this stuff and like that's just not how people do it and i sort of have to learn like the unwritten rules of stuff and it got like a lot of like kind of infamous answers during that tournament <laughs> about like um sherpa was saying isn't she back in poland already was to me uh-huh Sangha talking about like women's players getting more upsets because they have hormones. That was to me um, a bunch of like different like sort of flashpoint stuff in that tournament that I remember being like so excited to get to. And also, I have like a, I kind of have like you know again with the pot stirring. Like I know like what sort of situations are likely to provoke like you know memorable answers. Let's put it that way. Um, and uh-huh. I'm happy to push those buttons when possible. Have you ever accidentally uh, congratulated a person uh, even though they lost? Because that's happened way too I many times. I don't think so, but I have, I'm pretty sure, been in an interview where I wasn't sure if the person won or lost. Uh-huh. Because there are, the people come in waiting for, you know, Sloan, and then Burditch comes in because, like, they moved him up in the schedule, and he's, or he shut up early or whatever, and Burditch sits down. And you're like, questions for Burditch, Ben? And you go like, oh, crap, I had nothing to say to Burditch here. Uh, and you've got to come up with a, a thing to, to say. So I have a lot of I have a lot of sympathy for the report. I understand the players getting upset about it. Like, the Mahout one, obviously, is infamous. But, like, yes. with Mahout, like, I could tell that was that was Bill Simons, an American reporter. If Mahout had won, he was going to play Isner in the next round. And so, like, cl- Mahout Isner is a thing. Like, he was clearly there, like, to ask a question about, like, playing Isner. Um and in that whole you know their history together and whatever um and in a first round of a slam there's there's you know 60 something matches going on at various times and it's very easy to miss a result or possibly mistake a result on the scoreboard or something and so like you know that just and and he probably wasn't expecting to be the only english speaker in there or whatever so he probably wasn't you know if there's no other english questions he had to go first and so he said congratulations as an opener or whatever but yeah I, I those those are that was like a sort of funny viral moment that hopefully Bill doesn't take too seriously at the mm. moment anymore. Um, but uh, it happens. There's a lot of a lot of stuff to juggle, and sometimes you're very very uh, full on, and you're just there's a lot of time management stuff to do it at Grand Slams where you're going back and forth to watch. You don't actually spend that much time watching tennis during the first couple rounds of a Grand Slam. Like you're just trying to be like a sort of air traffic controller, trying to get to all the right you know interviews and press conferences and keep track of one on one times and all that stuff, and so. Yeah, totally, totally valid to not know every result. And this is separately, but it came up like sometimes with uh, during the Australian Open where like Nick McCarville got like blasted yeah. by some people for saying he hadn't wasn't familiar with Karatsev, yeah. 
before the Australian Open. Like, why would he be? Like, Kyra yeah. was not a relevant yeah. player on the level of the tour, which Nick McCarville covers, you know, for mm. years. And maybe he'd seen the name, maybe he hadn't. But, like, there was no reason why he should have been all up in Karat 7. So many fans, like, pride themselves on being... Or I'm like, I'm like picking those moments and like criticizing journalists or whoever for being mm-hmm. not smart yeah. or ill-informed. It just doesn't do anybody any good to sort of rip on that. Yeah, it's Karatsev's fault for not being better. If he he didn't he didn't deserve Nick McCarver's <laughs> attention until that point. That's fair. As a Diego fan, I uh, completely. Uh, yeah, I mean Diego. Uh, yeah, Diego did not probably see Karatsev coming either, for sure. No. Do you feel like Scott? How 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 are you doing with this now? Are you are you feeling? Less scared by me, more scared. How 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 are you? How, what's your what's your what's your growth bender in the last hour plus? You know what? Like, I'll maybe I'll maybe tone it down on like the the Twitter abuse of <laughs> the, the Twitter reply. I mean, look, like I'm happy to to I I've gotten more loose on my. You said you're not blocked. I've gotten more loose on my block finger for sure in recent just year or so because I just I don't need it. You know, if people want to be yeah. ridiculous, like I had some person message me like after i said something like great win by andrescu yesterday i got someone like saying all these like canadian flag emojis being like don't talk about our player like go stick to curios and i was like what are you even talking about like this is just <laughs> nonsense you know tourette's outburst being upset that wow. i mentioned yeah, andrescu yeah, yeah. so i just i blocked that person why don't why do i need that mental illness in my life again um so wow. um it's a lot i get a lot of incoherent stuff and i filter out you know through twitter official filters are just my own filters uh Mm-hmm. almost all of it where it sort of rolls off but uh that's fair but yeah but people you know people in this in tennis even me who sort of you know like the, the big fish in tennis media twitter at least like i'm not getting much out of this in terms of like money or acclaim or not getting the best seats at restaurants or whatever that you know justify um people feeling as strong about me as i do i'm still like a freelance writer living uh you know, in my bedroom, basically during a pandemic, not doing much. So people, people who get really animated by me, I, I just still find, and my friends like find baffling, like people that people care, like have like, you know, especially non-tennis, like friends. I mean, like, like people get have such strong opinions about me on the internet is, is makes no sense to anybody because I like That's think fair. matches could be shorter. Like what? Hey, where is the, next, coming from? the next time that, the next time that I go to at you, Ben, I'll be like, he doesn't care. <laughs> I really don't. But it makes you feel better. I, again, I know that like almost every like those replies I get says much more about the sender than about me. So if you if That's you're fair. feeling frustrated with the world and say and see me see something say something stupid about you know some like match that's like you know three all in the in the, in the third set after four hours, um, feel free. I won't. I won't mind. I won't mind. You obviously know Scott. Um, you mentioned that you knew him uh, before coming on. That like you knew that he had said some some things. Yeah. Um, do you keep track of this with like more people? Yeah, I have a long notebook. Like no, no, I, I don't. I, don't, I, don't really, I, I, I really don't. No, I. Faces all the way back. No, I just. I mean, I'm on Twitter, so I know names. And, and Scott, obviously, you know, Barclay Card like tweets, you know, plenty of, uh, of stuff. So, where I, you know, it's not that big of a of a pool of people who are the the, the, the active people on Twitter, and certainly, you know, it's not just yeah. people who I follow who um who are in my mentions or who get retweeted enough to where they sort of become, you know, in my peripheral vision on twitter yeah. let's say yeah so there's, mm-hmm. there's lots of people of various levels of infamy in my mind and others um scott's definitely not the worst <laughs> in any stretch but uh yeah but we uh, do see, we do see. And, and it's, so it's hard. very early on being on tour is that like the players like pretty much all like 
would read my tweets, whether it was like from like Serena down, like they all were like aware of like things. I, and I just thought of myself, especially back then I had like, I don't know, like 3000 Twitter followers when I first got on, started doing yeah. it more full time, which was yeah. on the middle end of like what Twitter was at that point, but like still really low, but they were all searching their own names. They were all doing all this stuff and they were very on top of like what people were saying about them. And that was a lesson I had to learn very early that like the players all like know and care and are sensitive about what you're going to say about them on Twitter. So pick your spots more there. And I'm sure like Zverev or whatever, like had seen everything I'd ever written about him on Twitter <laughs> or whoever else has, has, has feelings like that. So that's fair. That's fair. Um, any, any, any final things you want to say yourself, Ben, about, you know, no, just thank you guys for, for having me and thank you for your, your shared affection for Andy Murray, who I think is a, a gem and keeps, procreating so good for him for that um probably you know put a cap at this point he's got, got, got a good uh doubles match of a family there um yeah his groin is hurting too much well not not enough apparently not not to slow him down so uh yeah so he's uh being active that way um yeah good for good for him and, and uh hope that the rest of his uh career is uh satisfying to him whatever that may mean well, we want to thank you so much, Ben, for coming on and braving our questions. Thank you so much for listening to all of us. And I hope uh, y'all have a great yeah. night. Thank you Take very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Bye. guys. Bye.